Hello? Hello. Yes? Who is this? Who are you trying to reach? What number is this? What number are you trying to reach? I don't know. Who is this? You tell me your name, I'll tell you mine. I don't think so. What's that noise? Popcorn. I'm getting ready to listen to a podcast. Really? What? Just one from the University of Manchester. Do you like astronomy podcasts? Uh-huh. What's your favorite astronomy podcast? I don't know. You have to have a favorite. Uh, the Think Tank Planetarium podcast. You know, the one with the guys with the planetarium and they talk about the night sky and stuff. Think Tank, huh? You never told me your name. Why do you want to know my name? Because I want to know who I'm looking at. What did you say? I want to know who I'm talking to. That's not what you said. What do you think I said? I have to go now. You're getting scared. No, bored. Listen, you... No, you listen to me, girl. If you hang up on me, I'll make you rewrite all your academic research proposal plans and fill out risk assessment and truplicate on them all. Understand? Is this some kind of a joke? More of a game, really. I'm two seconds from calling the police. They'd never make it on time. What do you want? Go to the computer and press play on your MP3 player. No, please don't make me do that. I have the health and safety right here. All right. All right. Oh, no. The Jodcast. As mentioned in Astronomy Now magazine. With Nick Rattenbury, Stuart Lowe, Ian Morrison, Megan Argo, and David Alt. The Jodcast. May issue. Hello and welcome to the May edition of the Jodcast. And we're joined this month by a very special guest here in our Birmingham studio. I'd like to welcome back to the show Stuart Lowe. Hello again. Hello. It's good to be back. Yes, it's good to have you back. Uh, you've been around the world. I have. Um, last month you had my report from New Zealand. That's um, true, yes. Following New Zealand I went to Australia where I talked to Ian Musgrave who's a very enthusiastic amateur astronomer and took me around and showed me the southern sky. And we'll have more about that later on. That sounds great. Actually talking to real people doing real astronomy in their back gardens. Yep, and in the Southern Hemisphere as well. Fantastic. And also on this month's Jodcast, we have, of course, your favourites, The Night Sky with Ian Morrison and Ask an Astronomer. Nick has interviewed Dr. Ralph Spencer and Dr. Matt Strong about very long baseline interferometry. We'll be finding out all about that uh, later on in the show. Ian has also reviewed for us uh, a special telescope... But first, before all of that, we have the news with Megan Argo. In the news this month. A giant cloud of alcohol discovered in a stellar nursery. Comet 73P continues to disintegrate as it heads closer to the sun. Venus Express takes the most detailed picture of the weather above the south pole of the planet. And the Hubble Space Telescope celebrates 16 years in orbit. Astronomers using the upgraded Multi-Element Radio-Linked Interferometer Network, or MERLIN, the UK's Radio Telescope Array, have discovered a giant cloud of methyl alcohol wrapped around a stellar nursery. This cloud, spanning approximately 288 billion miles, was discovered in a part of the sky known as W3OH. 
a region within our own galaxy where many new stars are forming by the gravitational collapse of clouds of gas and dust. New radio observations, made with Merlin, have revealed immense filaments of gas, which are acting in a similar way to lasers. Molecules within the gas are amplifying beams of microwave radiation, with the result that these filaments appear very bright at particular wavelengths within the radio part of the electromagnetic spectrum. Bright maser spots have previously been detected in W3OH, but this is the first time filaments of maser emission have been seen connecting together these spots, thanks to the upgrade of Merlin. Dr. Lisa Harvey-Smith, a familiar voice on the Jodcast, was the principal investigator on this study, and described the results as challenging some long-accepted views held in astronomical maser research. Until we found these filaments, we thought of masers as point-like objects, or very small bright hotspots, surrounded by halos of fainter emission, she said. The spots themselves are associated with the formation of massive stars within much larger gas clouds, while the filaments occur at shock boundaries where large regions of gas are colliding. The results were presented at the UK's National Astronomy Meeting in Leicester on the 4th of April. Over the last three years, astronomers around the world, both amateur and professional, have been tracking the disintegration of Comet 73P, or swashman rockman 3 as its orbit has brought it towards the Sun. In recent months, the number of separate pieces into which the nucleus has fragmented has increased several times. The comet now consists of over 30 separate fragments stretching over several degrees in the sky and is continuing to disintegrate. Comets like 73P can be described as giant dirty snowballs which move around the solar system in highly elliptical orbits. As they near the Sun, parts of the surface begin to sublime, leaving behind a trail of ice and dust particles, known as the tail, which always points directly away from the Sun. 73P is nearing perihelion, the closest point in its orbit to the Sun, which will occur on the 7th of June 2006. The closest it will come to the Earth during this orbit is a very safe 11.7 million kilometres, about 30 times the distance from the Earth to the Moon, and this will occur on the 12th of May this year. Telescopes around the world have been observing the spectacular destruction over the last few years, watching as huge chunks separate from the main body of the comet and subsequently continue to disintegrate. The most detailed images so far have been provided by the Hubble Space Telescope and the ground-based VLT in Chile. Links to these images can be found on our website. Comet Shumakalevi 9 was pulled apart by the gravitational effect of Jupiter in the early 1990s, but there are other reasons why comets might disintegrate. Thermal stresses caused by heating from the Sun, explosions by pockets of volatile gases trapped within the comet, or they could fly apart due to rapid rotation of the nucleus. The breakup of Comet 73P could be due to a combination of these effects, something that further observations will help astronomers to determine. During April, the European Space Agency's Venus Express spacecraft successfully went into orbit around the planet, and on the 12th of April, it returned the first ever image of the South Pole. As the craft passed 206,000 kilometres above the pole, Engineers switched on both the Venus monitoring camera and the visible and infrared thermal imaging spectrometer and photographed the polar region in superb detail. The results show clear structures and fine details in the cloud formations around the pole, surprising scientists working on the mission. One especially surprising feature is a dark vortex almost directly over the pole, corresponding to a similar feature seen previously in pictures of the North Pole of Venus. The major scientific goal of the mission is to probe the thick atmosphere of the planet in detail. 
and these early images, taken from a height much greater than that of the final orbit, have already given the astronomers some exciting results, and much more is expected over the lifetime of the spacecraft. Finally, to mark 16 years in orbit, in April, the Hubble Space Telescope, operated by NASA and ESA, released the sharpest wide-angle image of the nearby starburst galaxy M82. The observation, carried out by Jay Gallagher of the Space Telescope Science Institute and P. Puxley of the National Science Foundation, consists of several images taken with the advanced camera for surveys, merged together to create a large mosaic covering both the disk of the galaxy and the plumes of hydrogen gas spreading out both above and below the galaxy, powered by the high rate of star formation within the disk. This galaxy is located roughly 12 million light-years away in the constellation of Ursa Major, and is forming stars at a rate 10 times higher than in our own galaxy, due to the gravitational interaction with its near neighbour, M81. The Hubble Space Telescope was launched on April 24, 1990, on board the Space Shuttle Discovery, although its future is now somewhat uncertain as NASA tried to decide whether to send another manned servicing mission to fix the spacecraft. OK, thanks for that, Megan. And you can hear more about Comet Schwassmann-Wachmann 3 in... Good pronunciation, Dave. Thank you very much, Stuart. Uh, I haven't just been practising it for the last five minutes. You can hear more about that in Ian Morrison's Night Sky, and also, I think you mention it, don't you, Stuart? Yes, I'll talk to another Ian about the same comet. OK, so, Stuart, what do we have coming up next? Well, we sent Nick to talk to Dr Ralph Spencer and Dr Matt Strong about something called Very Long Baseline Interferometry. In fact, new developments in Very Long Baseline Interferometry that make it so much better than it already is. And of course, VLBI is where telescopes from across England, from across Europe, and indeed across the world, have been joined together to give superb and stunning pictures in radio astronomy. Yep, that's right. They give us the best resolution of all the different wave bands in astronomy. Brilliant. So let's hear what Nick found out. Thank you for coming on today, Ralph, and uh, talking to us. Please explain a little bit about how the Level Telescope here at Jodrell Bank is part of this wider network. The, the idea is that uh, we're using a technique called interferometry, where you need to connect together several telescopes separated by large distances in order to study the fine detail within uh, the radio sources in the sky. The Lovell Telescope, being a nice large telescope, has got lots of sensitivity and is a very useful addition to this network of telescopes that we set up around the world. Now, in order to connect them, obviously, you've got to somehow bring all these signals from each telescope back together somewhere. And we do that within our own little array called Merlin here at Jodrell by sending the signals along microwave links. Shortly, they'll, they'll be replaced by optical fibres. But when you've got distances which travel the, the Earth, of course, it's impractical to send radio signals all the way across, particularly at the higher bandwidths and uh, high rate of data usage that we need. However, so, so, sorry, so what we used to do is certainly is record the, the um, data onto magnetic tapes and then more recently magnetic disks. But what we're developing now is to use the Internet. The internet, of course, uses optical fibers buried in the ground or in submarine cables going all the way around the world. And uh, there is uh, a small amount of unused capacity on these uh, fibers. The rest of it, of course, used for telephone calls, TV programs, and general communications. But we need uh, very high data rates, something like, oh, I would guess, around 100 times to 1,000 times. The sort of levels you're getting in broadband. So right, we're talking so this about is like broadband to your home. We need 1,000 times that yeah. amount of 
data transfer yeah. for the sort of uh, the sort of work linking these telescopes. So that means rather specialised techniques. So we've been developing for the last four years ways of doing that, ways of using the internet, driving at this tremendous data rate. We're going up to almost one gigabit per second, nine hundred wow. megabits per second. That's remarkable. Using. Yeah. So the main achievement has been linking the data coming from all these separate telescopes. Mm through the internet, rather than recording all the data at each individual telescope site onto magnetic tape and then physically shipping it across to some place. That, that's right. It, it saves all the hassle of shipping tapes, means you get the results in real time as, as they happen so we can respond very much quicker than we were able to before to transient events in the sky. Something goes bang, supernova goes off, we're able to quickly swing the telescopes onto it and get the results within hours rather than having to wait for days or weeks like we used to before. Let's go back a step and let's just discuss why we should bother doing this. I mean, the, 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 the level telescope is, is what? How big is it? 250 feet across or something? Yeah, is 250 right? feet, 76 meters. Surely that's big enough. We, but we do know that bigger is better. We know that bigger is better. That's yeah. why we buy you know, bigger and faster computers. We buy bigger and faster cars in some cases. Right. Why should we want to have a bigger telescope? Surely 250 feet is enough. Well, the, the problem here, we're, we're limited by, by physics. It's by diffraction in, in optics. The telescope itself has a, a beam or a, a response which is quite broad compared with the size of the individual objects we want to look at. Typical frequencies working at, for instance, it's 10 minutes of arc or half a degree sometimes. And uh, that is enormous. We're talking about objects which are thousands of times smaller than that. We're studying objects which are... Fractions of an arc second, in fact, down to a thousandth of an arc second in size. So they appear very, very small in the They're sky, very, basically. Very small and objects. using, so what, what you're saying is that the telescope, even this massive telescope mm. at Jodrell Bank, still can't see these tiny, small objects. It, well, it, it can detect them, but it can't uh, resolve their structures and see what things they are. So what we can't, we can't is, see their shape it, exactly. No. It'll just be a blur. It'll just say there's something there. That's all you can get out of it. You can't say what its shape is, uh, how its brightness varies with the wavelength or whatever, and uh, all the physical parameters you just can't tell from just a simple, single telescope like that. And that's why we need these big interferometer arrays in, arrays in order to find uh, the detail of the structure. So essentially right. interferometry works. This fancy word interferometry means you've got more than one telescope observing the same thing at the same time, and you combine the signals together. Yeah. Okay, so why should that help? Why should it help that you have two telescopes separated by a certain distance? Surely if, if one telescope can only just detect a blur, then two telescopes won't necessarily be that much better. It's all because um, you've got this interference pattern between the two telescopes. It's a bit like young slits, for any of you that's done that at school or seen it, where the fringe pattern on the screen depends on the spacing of the two slits. And here it's the same sort of thing, that the spacing of the slits, if you like, is the spacing of the two telescopes. And so the, the width of the pattern on the screen depends on the spacing. So the resolution that you get depends directly as the distance apart of the two telescopes. So the bigger the distance, the smaller the angular resolution of the telescope. Does that mean that a, uh, two telescopes separa separated by a certain distance performs like a telescope of that distance? To some extent, yes, it does. In terms of resolution, yes, that's right. In terms of sensitivity, of course it's not, because you've only got these two small, relatively small dishes compared with the baseline between them. To get the same sort of resolution, for instance, in radio wavelengths that one has with the Hubble Space Telescope, then you need something like uh, 200 kilometre baselines. And this is, the, in other words, distance between the telescopes of 200 kilometres. 
And this is exactly what Merlin is. It has telescopes up to that spacing. So Merlin's an acronym. What, is it, what does it stand for? Multi-element radio-linked interferometer. Quite a mouthful. Super, Merlin. We'll stick with Merlin, I think. <laughs> so <laughs> Merlin, Merlin has is an array of telescopes. Uh, where are these telescopes? Where are they? Uh, well, mainly the telescopes are dotted around. There's a few relatively close to Jodrell Bank. There's some out in around in Cheshire. Going further afield, there's one down in Knocking in Shropshire. There's uh, one down south of Birmingham at Defford in Worcestershire. And the furthest away is one in uh, near Cambridge. So the furthest away one, of course, is the one with 200 kilometre baseline. Right. And so with this array, with the furthest distant radio telescope mm. to Jodrell Bank, or the furthest separated mm. telescope in this array, mm. it gives us effectively a radio telescope, which is 200, 200 kilometers in diameter. In terms of looking at very small objects in terms of their resolution. Yes, that's right. That's fantastic. So that so, gives us So when resolution. we go to VLBI, of course, now we're talking about uh, thousands of kilometers across because so the telescopes are go all the way around the world. Explain what VLBI is then. Well, VLBI stands for Very Long Baseline Interferometry as opposed to Short Baseline Interferometry. <laughs> uh, and here the telescopes are those situated in all sorts of countries in the world. There is a European network, we call it EVN, European VLBI network, which actually includes two telescopes in China. You never thought China was in Europe, but it is, as far as <laughs> scientists is, yes. are concerned. And so we have two or 3,000 kilometer baselines from going from ones here in Jodrell Bank in the UK all the way across the ones in China, that one in Shanghai. And these telescopes join together regularly about um, three, four times a year for sessions of about three or four weeks long where there's an agreed program of observations they make, and uh, they look at uh, looking simultaneously at the same objects in the sky at the same time, at the same frequency, the same polarization. You have telescopes in Europe looking at the same thing as a telescope in China yeah. at the same time, yeah. and you're able to We're able to organize it so that they can do that. Mind you, it's taken a few years to get that to work. <laughs> uh, we've had all these things that go wrong before in the past, but anyway, they work now, so it's very good. So in that sense, you've got a telescope essentially the size, the distance from the, the size of the Earth, the size of the Earth from yeah. Europe to yeah. China. The Japanese launched a satellite called Hauka, which had um, a small telescope on it, and that joined in with telescopes again around the world doing the same thing. So in fact, we got bigger than the Earth. We went to about three times the Earth diameter in terms of size. That's remarkable. And what size things can a telescope that size, including the, the, the Japanese satellite, how small can you see? With well, these are, these are mostly quasars. These are the centers of, very, of active galaxies, which are uh, very bright in optical and radio. They are objects which eject um, blobs of matter at apparent superluminal speeds, apparently vast and light. But in fact, their actual velocity is perhaps 90 to 99% of the speed of light. Still remarkably uh, correct. Yeah, and because of Doppler boosting effects and various things, these appear to be very bright, and you can see the effects of the, the blobs moving out. So there's a number of monitoring observations are being made. These are these are things we call jets. They have a jet-like structure. In other words, it's like a, a spray of material coming out from a central black hole in a reasonably well-collimated jet, like a jet of water. Mm. These um, blobs move out very fast, as we said, and uh, interact with the surrounding medium. And the, the big question is, well, what generates these jets? And it's all to do with mechanisms around the, the black hole in the centre of the object. In fact, the presence of jets is a very good indicator that there's a black hole in the centre. So you're actually discovering the physics going on around black holes? It's the physics think? around black holes that uh, we're investigating when I'm doing this. So yeah. it's all to do with strange magnetic field and general relativity effects. Which, all spectacular uh, stuff. Read the... Uh, Kick Thorne's book on the membrane par paradigm, you will see what, 
Let's talk about the the latest technological improvement that you've managed. You mentioned it earlier on, the fact that you now no longer rely on recording all the data on site, all these separate telescopes around the world, Mm -hmm. recording all the data that they receive onto magnetic tape, and then they all get sent to one particular place for them to be combined so that you can do this analysis whereby all the data are combined and you now have an effectively uh, bigger telescope. Now the improvement you say is it's all done electronically, online, basically. Well, we, we, we're getting there. With, at the moment, only six telescopes can do that in Western Europe. Uh, one in fact includes one in Tehran, in Poland. So which telescopes are the ones which are currently These connected? Current ones are the two at, uh, in the UK. That's the Cambridge Telescope and the local ones here. Um, one of the local ones here. And then uh, there's one in Westerbork in, in northern Holland, in the Netherlands. There's one in Onsler in Sweden. There's one in Tehran in Poland. And there's one in uh, near... Bologna in Italy. Right. The biggest telescope in Europe that's generally used for these things is the uh, Effelsberg 100 meter near Bonn, but they are not connected yet. So presumably over time you yeah. want to connect more and more of these telescopes. We're gradually connecting them in. There is a program to, an EU funded program to try and do that to connect rather more telescopes into this system. So maybe in five or ten years time then we will see all of them, telescopes worldwide. Do you right. use existing internet links or do you actually have to put new ones in? No, they're existing links. Uh, the, the ones for our own array for Merlin are our own links. We, we have them put in. But the international links, of course, it's prohibitively expensive to lay. We're talking about million pounds a mile. Sure. That's what the costs of a, laying a submarine cable. So we, we obviously make use of what's there already. And the academic networks around the, the globe, there's uh, around, uh, particularly in Europe, we have... Um, one called Superjanet in the UK, which is run on behalf of the research councils by an organisation calling themselves UKERNER. And uh, they connect the universities within the UK to various places so that we can connect from us right down to London and then to Amsterdam. And then there's a a network called Shayan in uh, Europe, which is again an academic network. It connects together all the individual national academic networks and this is uh, high bandwidth. We're talking about 10 gigabit per second links that go all throughout Europe and everywhere. So we're making use of that. Of course, there's loads of other uses. All the rest of the country's research and uh, universities also use these links. And we'll hear Nick's interview with Dr. Matt Strong later on in the show. Right, Dave, one of the things I love about astronomy is that anyone can do it. Mm-hmm. You don't need millions of pounds worth of telescope. So at the most basic level, you just need a dark sky and your own eyes um, and an interest in what's out there. Hmm. Now, that's the case for many amateur astronomers, and they're very active in astronomical research, which is something you perhaps wouldn't imagine for something like brain surgery. Um, and they help full-time researchers with observations of variable stars. Um, they discover asteroids and comets, and they help disseminate astronomical discoveries and results to the wider public through astronomy clubs, star parties, and in recent years through the Internet. So out of general nosiness, I thought I would talk to some amateur astronomers to find out what it is they do and how they got started and what keeps them outside on very cold nights. Where have you started on this project? Well, as I was in Australia passing through, I talked to Ian Musgrave, who's a professional biologist, but an amateur astronomer by night. And he's also a volunteer contributor to Australia's Sky and Space magazine, and he runs a Southern Skywatch website. Now, when I interviewed him, it was actually three o'clock in the morning, um, and we were in his back garden, so we were trying to be quite quiet to not disturb the neighbours. So let's go over and find out what it is he had to say. 
Hi Ian, welcome to the Jodcast. Hi Stuart, it's a pleasure to speak to you. And you're the person who creates the Southern Skywatch website. That's true. Um, can you tell us a bit about what that actually does? Okay, the Southern Skywatch website fulfills two needs. It's Firstly, it's a page for people who don't know much about astronomy but would like to look at things in the sky and would also like to, to uh, be able to just use their unaided eyes. And there's an awful lot in the sky that we can see that's really quite beautiful without uh, the need for expensive equipment. And the other thing is, of course, from a southern hemisphere point of view, while there's quite a few uh, web pages that describe the sky from a northern hemisphere point of view, us southern hemispherians tend to be less well uh, set up in that regard. I mean, there's a number of astronomy sites for amateur astronomers, but that tends to be from the point of view of telescopic observers rather than those people who just like to go out, look in their backyard, look up and say, what the heck am I looking at? Now, your webpage, I've had a look at it, and it's very good. It tells you all sorts of things about things you, you can see in the sky. You cover planets and comets. There was a comet recently. Podjmansky, which is uh, quite interesting. Visible only in the early morning sky, you find that most people are not too willing to get up at 5 o'clock in the morning to see a fuzzy dot. But nonetheless, uh, quite a few people did, and they had... Uh, uh, an interesting time we were able to see it. And the Southern Hemisphere got the, the first look. We got the, fir we got the first uh, dibs on Pomchmansky and uh, were able to give people a good idea what was going on. It never got really bright and it never really developed a big tail or even a small tail uh, from the point of view of a binocular observer. But it was still quite uh, beautiful to see it go skimming past uh, Venus and uh, Alpha and Beta Capricornii in the morning. It was very uh, nice to see that. And I think there's another comet coming up this May. Yes, there? there is. I can't pronounce the name properly. Uh, it's something like Saxman Wasserman. This is a comet that quite recently broke up into multiple fragments, and so it'll be quite interesting because we'll have one fragment that should be somewhere between magnitude uh, 3 and magnitude 2, although, as, as always with comets, they've got a good capacity to surprise us by doing exactly the opposite of what we expect. The uh, other fragment will be binocular bright. There's a number of other fragments which can only be observed in telescopes, but from the point of view of our observers, the second fragment will be about, about binocular bright, eventually becoming bright enough to see if you're in a, out in the country. So you'll have two uh, comet fragments getting bright at roughly the same time, so it'll be quite interesting. Which direction would we have to look into uh, to see the comet? To see the comet, you'll be looking into, the, well. the, uh, looking into the uh, north-east, for the Southern Hemispherians, your best time to see it is in the very early morning, just before astronomical twilight, say about an hour before the sun rises. So if you're, if you can, if you can find the Southern Cross, now we're outside at the moment, so we so, are actually yeah. looking upwards. So, so I'll, I'll wave wildly <laughs> at the sky. So if you find the Southern Cross, all you do is rotate yourself basically 90 degrees from the Southern Cross, and you'll be facing roughly east. And then if you look uh, further, by about another quarter of a turn, it should be roughly the area that the comet will be. And it'll be looking basically like a fuzzy star. It'll be about, uh, if you hold your hand up to, against the sky as far as it can go, it'll be about four widths of your hand roughly above the horizon, around about its uh, greatest brightness, around about the uh, May the 13th.
so it's something to look forward to. Something, something but to look forward to. I think there's a few of the things that Southern Hemisphere people can look forward to in in May. Yes, yes. Uh, I mean, uh, the comet is going to be visible both northern and southern uh, hemispherians. The other thing is the opposition of Jupiter. Now, uh, on May the 5th, Jupiter will be at its brightest and biggest. This isn't saying much. Jupiter is always bright and big, unlike Mars, which goes from being almost unobservable to uh, quite uh, reasonably sized in a telescope. Jupiter is always big, but even so, at the opposition, it is biggest and brightest, and you will get your best views at this time. The advantage that the southern hemispherians have over the northern hemispherians is that for us the ecliptic will be almost straight up and down. So the ecliptic being the plane of the solar system. The ecliptic being the plane of the solar system, so Jupiter will be quite high in the sky. In fact, we're looking at it now, and it's not far below the oh, zenith. Oh, yeah, it is. Whereas uh, earlier on in the, e- in the evening we were looking at Saturn, and uh, from the southern hemisphere and point of view, Saturn never really gets much hot. got very high off the horizon because it's accumulating earlier in the season. Whereas the northern hemispherians, you won't see Jupiter get quite so high above the horizon as we're going to see it. And of course, as Jupiter's slightly larger, it makes um, seeing the cloud bands much, much more easily. And also, the uh, Jupiter's great red spot, which is now it's greatly, slightly off pink spot, it's been fading over the years. And also, the sun of the red spot, there's a second... The baby spot. There's a baby uh, red spot, which is about half its size. The other thing you might like try to, trying to do in uh, in May is May is when uh, one of the outer satellites of uh, Jupiter is going to be as far as it possibly can away from uh, Jupiter and its orbit. Theoretically, you should be able to see it with your naked eye. You need to be able to find some way of blocking off uh, Jupiter itself. So Which the moon is that? I believe it's Callisto. I can't remember. Callisto, so one of the four Galilean moons. One of the four Galilean moons, and it will be uh, it will be bright enough to be visible with the naked eye, but you need to block out the light of Jupiter to be able to see it. And early May is the best time. Early May is going to be good. Opposition of Jupiter and naked eye Callisto, if you can do it. So your Southern Skywatch website, um, people can find that on the internet. And yes. what's the easiest way to find that? Um, the easiest way to find that is to go to the Australian uh, ABC website, that's the Australian Broadcasting uh, uh, Corporation. You'll find Southern Skywatch on the Outer Space section of the ABC Science website. Uh, alternatively, uh, you'll do a direct link to the website. We will. We'll put a link yeah. at www.jodcast.net. Ian, how did you actually get interested in astronomy in the first place? Well, I've always been interested in space ever since I can remember. But I was also a boy scout, and one day, or one of the one night, the uh, scoutmaster brought along a friend of his with a telescope, and he showed us Saturn. And I got really excited and went home and got a hold of my father's uh, binoculars and started scanning the sky and making sketches of the moon as it came up over my windowsill and things like that. And eventually I got enough, uh, saved enough money to purchase my own little telescope, one of the really horrible department store refle- uh, refractors that everyone warns you not to buy. But they're quite good as, as a beginner. And for a very beginner, they're quite good. They're cheap yeah, and they're easily portable. They get you started. They get you started. And the very first thing I did was set it up to look at the crescent moon and I saw it going in front of the Pleiades. So I saw an occultation of the Pleiades by the moon the very first time I used my telescope. And after that, I was hooked. 
which is tremendous luck. <laughs> incredible luck. I just, uh, I've ne- I never saw a uh, occultation of the Pleiades since, although mostly that's got, have a lot to do with cloud rather than uh, lack the bane of, of the uh, astronomer's the life. bane of the astronomer's life. Although, uh, as an as a alternative hobby, you can also start doing meteorology as well and uh, learn cloud forms. So what kind of um, instruments do you use um, as an amateur to observe the sky? Well, I use multiple instruments, actually. I, might, I still use my uh, little 50mm refractor. I take that with me on bushwalks. It's very easy to carry and very portable. Binoculars, I still use my father's 10 by 50 binoculars. They're incredibly useful for spotting comets in the sky, just scanning along the Milky Way. I mean, there's nothing like lying back in a lawn chair of a warm afternoon, just a warm night, just going through the Milky Way. It's absolutely stunning. Yeah, binoculars are a really good. Binoculars, and, and again, they're, they're incredibly portable. If you go going bush and you're uh, cars packed to the hilt. You can always fit in a, a pair of binoculars when your telescope won't fit in. But for my uh, serious observing, and all my observing is serious, I do it with a very straight face, as you can see. Um, <laughs> but f- uh, for my serious observing, I have a 114mm uh, Newtonian. Now, uh, real amateur astronomers uh, use much bigger instruments than that. But for what I use, uh, for what I need, the little uh, Newtonian is fantastic. Again, it's very portable. I've taken it all round uh, large chunks of Australia. I've taken it out to uh, uh, the Australian desert to uh, watch the solar eclipse. Well, I had to, of course, purchase a solar filter for my telescope before taking it to the solar eclipse, uh, which has been a very good purchase because I've been doing lots of solar astronomy with it as well as watching the transit of Venus and transits of Mercury. So that, that little um, uh, telescope has been very useful. I mean, it, it gives very good uh, images of the planets. It's very good for imaging the moon. Uh, I must say the planets, I agree, because I was looking through it earlier on and got some fantastic views of Saturn with the rings and, and Jupiter the, with the cloud bands. And it was, it was sort of all full Galilean moons. And you can see the bands on Jupiter quite nicely. You can see the shadows of the rings on Saturn. The Cassini division is out of the reach of my little instrument, but it's, you can easily see the colours and bands in the planets. We ran a very successful Mars campaign this year, looking at the changes in um, Mars as it uh, reached opposition. And it, we were also looking at the Globular Cluster Omega Centauri with this, and it was absolutely brilliant. It's like looking at it. Oh, that was just beautiful. It was to see that through a telescope, yeah. especially with the eyepiece you were using, it filled the whole field of view. And it's, it's like having an eyepiece full of diamond dust. So even though the uh, Newtonian, the 114mm uh, uh, Newtonian is a small instrument by amateur astronomer standards these days, it's a very flexible and very useful instrument. And I actually do quite a bit of astroimaging with my little uh, telescope. So what kind of cameras do you use? Or? Well, I've got, I've got a number of cameras, actually. My first uh, uh, camera is a simple Pentax SLR, which I just... Uh, I've got a T-adapter and just stick it down the eyepiece. And that was the, inst- the uh, camera I used for photographing the solar eclipse uh, and also for photographing transits of Venus and Mercury. And my other instrument is a converted web camera. So nice and cheap, then? Nice and cheap. You uh, can pay a couple of thousand dollars for a... Uh, a proper astronomical CCD camera, or you can pay 
$100 or so for a web camera and convert it into a very handy astronomical imaging instrument. And I use that to make maps of the moon, uh, imaging Jupiter. I'm currently making an animation of the phases of Venus using this instrument. So how long have you been going so far on making animation? I started in the, at the very beginning of February and I probably will keep on going till about the middle of the year, taking an image approximately every four days. Of course, this means getting up at four o'clock and five o'clock in the morning in order to take these images, but uh, I only have to do that once to twice a week, which is uh, it's not too much for something that's quite as fascinating as watching the, uh, the phases of Venus change. And uh, when my children were small, I had to get up at that, that hour far more often, so it's, uh, it's not too big an imposition. It looks quite dramatic as well that when you see Venus changing in size and the phase as well. Mm, yes. Because it changes in phase just like the moon changes yes, as yes. it goes around the Earth. In uh, this case, Venus going around the sun. I've, I've shown uh, both uh, the Venus and uh, some of my animations to some of my friends and they're quite stunned that first that Venus has phases and that you can see it change. So they're really quite uh, amazed And even the that. change in the size with the change in the phase, it just really, you can tell straight it's away that it is going around the sun. Yes, yes. And, uh, that was one of uh, Galileo's first uh, proofs that Earth did involve, uh, did in fact revolve around the sun rather than uh, the other way around. You can prove that the Earth goes around the Sun in your own backyard. Yes, you can show that one of the fu fundamental tenets of uh, astronomy really works in your own backyard. So science, you just don't have to take it on faith, you can demonstrate it yourself. Now, a question that people in the Northern Hemisphere might be wondering is, what object would you really wish you could see that's only visible in the Northern Hemisphere? Well, the, that object is the Andromeda Nebula, now, uh, or rather the Andromeda Galaxy. You can actually see the Andromeda Galaxy from my own backyard, um, but it's just scraping above the horizon, and unless you're in the Northern Territory or Cairns or something like that, it really doesn't get very far above the horizon. And that's so you're looking through a lot of atmosphere to see it. You're lo looking through a lot of atmosphere, and also often looking through a lot of trees to see it. <laughs> um, so that's the one object I'd really like to have in my uh, in my sky. But then you, it's not as if you're you've got a lack of objects in the southern sky because you really are spoiled for choice with what you can observe. Yeah, well we're we're out looking at the sky just at the moment, and starting off in the eastern horizon, we can sweep up. We can see the centre of the galaxy. We're looking at the Trifid and Lagoon nebulas, which we can see quite nicely with our naked eyes and then sweeping up through the rest of the uh, Milky Way. We've got open clusters galore, more globular clusters. We've got uh, Omega Centauri glittering above us there. The so one that we saw in the telescope. The one that we saw in the telescope. Uh, we can't, can't see right at the moment. We've got 47 Decana, which is another classic uh, spectacular globular cluster. We've even got two naked eye galaxies, the, the large and small Magellanic clouds. So we've got a huge number of objects to feast our eyes on. You're not lacking things to see down in the Southern Hemisphere. In fact, I think you've got the best half of the sky. Well, I, I won't disagree with you with that. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, for, for the listeners, we're just now gesticulating wildly at the sky. and uh, It doesn't quite work on, on it podcast. Doesn't, it doesn't work on podcast, but we're just looking up and sweeping through some really beautiful objects that you can see just with your unaided eye. 
it's quite impressive for me, especially as we're in a city as well. Yes, to yes. be able to see the Milky Way because in the UK where we only have a small percentage of the um, land area that we can actually see the Milky Way from. Yeah, and I'm just, we're just in a suburban backyard at the moment. Earlier on, we were up in the town called Kalamacha, um, up in the Adelaide Hills, where it was incredibly spectacular. Uh, but uh, even down here, amongst the murk, it's still you can still see it. It's still beautiful. Uh, look, you can can you can see the rift there, just between uh, Scorpio oh, and the dark, band. dark band there. You can see, so you this can, is the, the dark clouds of um, huge clouds of um, gas and dust which block out some of the light from the stars of Milky Way. Yes, yes. Um, give you dark bands. As there is a, a very dark one just below um, the Southern Cross, isn't there? Yeah. Colsac. Yeah. Is it a Colsac Th That's the Colsac Nebula. It's not so easy to see from my backyard, but it was very striking out at uh, out in the bush before. Right, well, Ian, thank you very much for taking the time to join us on the Jodcast. I hope you success with your Southern Skies website. Thank you very much. Cheers. Great. Thanks for that, Stuart. And I uh, look forward to hearing more in your series from amateur astronomers as we go on through the year. Now, earlier on, we heard from Dr. Ralph Spencer about what EVLBI is. But now let's go over to Nick, who is in the office of one of the scientists who actually uses EVLBI. Now, with me at the moment is uh, Dr. Matt Strong, who is a recently graduated PhD at the University of Manchester, working at Georgia Bank Observatory. Thank you for being with us today. It's no problem, Nick. Now, uh, we want to talk to you because you were there when all these telescopes were connected together as one telescope. Tell us a bit about where that was, what happened. This was at the Coral Letter uh, for VLBI, which is located in Holland at a place called JIVE, which is uh, an acronym for the Joint Institute for VLBI in Europe. And it was a very exciting time. Basically, we flew out to uh, to Holland on the day, got the train there, arrived at the place, and as we were getting there, we were we were just starting to set up for the EVLBI run. And before we could take any any measurements of the astronomical bodies, we had to test the system. So we pointed the te the telescopes, the six telescopes that were in the uh, in the observing session. We pointed them at a, a very strong radio source, something that we know very, very well, mm. and so we know what we should be getting out. Mm. And we basically pointed the telescopes at this and then ran the system and debugged the system to, uh, to make sure it would be all working fine for the observing room. Uh, there, were, there was some problems at the time which required some technical expertise to solve them. Uh, and the good thing is, is that uh, at Jive, there are a good lot of uh, technical support people there to, to help you do this. In fact, it, it was actually that those those people that were that were doing the observing run. This is although this was the first production run of this, the the whole support science staff was were there, was there to help and actually run the system. The, the two main people over there are uh, Bob Campbell, he's the head of, of the support science group, and uh, Arpad, who was the project lead for uh, EVLBI. They basically set the system up and, and, and debugged it, got it working all fine for our observing run to start. When we first pointed the telescope at the, the objects that were in our observing run, it was a very exciting time to see the data coming out of the back of the correlator. Uh, when I say see the, the data coming out <laughs> of the back of the correlator, that, that's actually uh, 
it's a, it's a bit difficult to imagine. All we really saw was, an, uh, was a light flashing. But, 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 <laughs> but the light flashing means that there's data coming out of the back. Yes. And, uh, and then we could go away and, uh, and look at this data in real time and, and, and basically make sure everything was fine. So what was actually happening? You were in an observatory, uh, uh, at the observatory, in a control room sitting in front of a computer, presumably. Yeah. But did you actually have control over all the telescopes in the array at that time? Well, the, the people that were running the observing run and, and, and us there had, a, had control of a certain amount of telescope information. What we, we basically had control of was what we call the back ends of the system. It's basically all the processing and actually what comes after the telescope. The positioning of the telescope and the control of pointing of the telescope was actually done by the telescope controllers at each institution, right? At each telescope observatory. So you weren't actually able to point the telescope yourself, or these separate telescopes yourself, or, or were you? It's it's a matter of uh, it's a matter of of, of of opinion really. What we have is what's called the schedule file, and the astronomers that are, that are taking the readings beforehand basically write a, a list of where they want the telescopes to point at what frequency and all all those kind of things. And uh, we then feed those into the into a, a system at each at each telescope, right. and the telescope automatically then goes to the, these points, unless something goes wrong, in which case it has to be manually uh, manually pointed or manually altered. Right. So all the data comes into you sitting there in Holland at the Jive Institute, coming into one computer, and then it gets added together. It gets correlated. It goes into this correlator. Now, what is actually happening there? Is the correlator actually? part of your computer software, or is it, a, is it a separate thing entirely? What is it? The correlator at Jive is what we call the hardware correlator. What that basically means is it's, it's a rather large box, and uh, the information goes into this box, and, it, and in, in hardware, with m- many different computer systems and computer processes and things in there, it then uh, comes out with an output. There are these things that are currently being developed these things called software correlators where you can have a network of computers not necessarily in the same room or in the same country even and uh, the correlators the, the, these computers can then perform little processes little parts of the correlation and out of the back of all of them will come the astronomical sig- signals then right but in this case it was actually a specialised piece of equipment specialised electronics that the data from all the telescopes were being fed into and the, the flashing light said that the, the data was coming out correctly. Yeah, uh, this is this is this was a hardware correlator. But even a, even a software correlator is, is a specialized a, a bit of equipment. It's something that not all computers, for instance, can can do. The reason why this is such an exciting time for you, for the observers, is that this was the first time that this correlation had been done in real time across such a wide array. At the same time, the data coming into the telescope was being all added together, and then the result being shown to you. And that's a major step forward because, as uh, Ralph Spencer said earlier, uh, previously all the data were being recorded by each telescope onto a magnetic tape and then it would take, what, how long? Days? Weeks? For all the data to be in one place well, actually, so it could be correlated? Actually, Nick, it can take anything from weeks to months depending on how the correlation at Jive is going. If there's a lot of a lot of experiments that need to be correlated, it can take a number of months for you for your observations to be to be taken and then be correlated and then be shipped back to you mm-hmm. at your institution. So it, it is a lengthy process and if you've got something wrong in that in, in that process, if you've got something wrong in your observing schedule or in, in, in your observing uh, session in general, you will not know about it until those three months or however many months have elapsed and you get your, your, your data back. And you have to think 
blast. I have to go and do it all again. Oh yeah, complete, complete waste of time. Need to need to need to be done again. And then you have to you have to beg the institutions to to, to do it again. You know, and you say sorry. It's you know hands up, my fault. You know, yeah. <laughs> or sometimes it's not your fault. Sometimes it's you know a, a lot of times there can be problems at telescopes, problems with the weather, problems with all sorts of things, and uh, and you'll not actually find out the the hundred the. the the complete extent of that until the time when you get it back, which could be a number of months afterwards. So by being able to combine all the information, all the data streams from all the telescopes, you're able to see the data coming out and decide whether it's all going according to plan, if it is actually working. And if there are problems, presumably you can fix them. That's that's the idea, yes. It is a, a, one of the primary aims of EVLBI for us to, to have these, this rapid response so we can, if anything goes wrong or if anything happens on the sky... For instance, a supernova going off or a transient event or anything, we can we're, we're, we can change everything and, and just do everything in, in a matter of minutes. There's two interesting things there. I mean, first of all, it's the it's in the name. It's EVLBI, in the same way that it's email and e-commerce. It's electronic. It's, it's basically a, a, an e-science application. Now we use we use computer networks, computer systems rather than old tech or or, or dispacks. It's, and it's in real time, and, uh, and and that's where the E comes from. Right, and so it's it's much faster, much more efficient, and as you just mentioned, you can respond to things happening much faster, transient events, things which are occurring now. Tell us a bit about how this is going to affect that. Well, at, at the moment, what happens is if anything happens on the sky, the the, the telescopes, especially in, in in radio astronomy, have to be scheduled. Proposals have to be put in. And you then ha- then get telescope time to monitor what's, whatever happens on the sky. You don't. It doesn't happen within within the course of minutes, hours, or or, or sometimes even even days. That the idea of EVLBI is that we can we can just react to something incredibly quickly. So if, for instance, a supernova goes off on, on the on the sky, uh, once we get word of it, we can then quickly point the telescopes to it. Set the correlation, set the tra- data transmission going, set the correlation going, and we can start then having having data within, it, you know, conceivably a matter of minutes, hours after the after the event is noted. So it's a combination of these two fantastic technologies being able to combine separate data streams from very remote telescopes in real time, and being able to use that to investigate transient phenomena with effectively a telescope the size of the Earth, or at, at the moment. Right? slightly smaller, but potentially it could be the size of the Earth, if not more. Yeah, I mean, there's no reason why this system that we have in, uh, in, in Europe cannot be extended to the, to the rest of the world. In fact, there's been demonstrations of, of this technique working on a global scale. We had a, a conference last year called Supercompute in 2005, and at this conference we demonstrated data transmission from telescopes from the US and from Europe. So we sent, we sent data from our telescope in Onsla, which is in Sweden, over our optical networks to a correlator in, in, in a place called Haystack in, in Boston. And there was also telescopes, data coming from Japan and coming from other parts of the US. And we had this huge global EVLBI demonstration there. That wasn't actually the full system being demonstrated. It was actually only the data transmission and what we call a fringe, which is basically a combination of signals from, from two data sources. We didn't actually... But well, we didn't have the, the technology to take it that one step further. At that time, it, we, we, we were still developing it. Right, but it will presumably at some stage become... Oh, yeah, definitely. It's, it's going to happen. Fantastic. Tell us a bit about... Uh, I mean, you're using this for, for your own research. Tell us about... Yeah, the... I'm interested in, uh, in supernova. A supernova is basically the end of a star's, a star's li- lifetime, an explosion at the end of its, li- of its, of its life. 
basically what happens is it kicks out matter in, in, in all directions and you, then from that you can learn lots of science about the star, about the interaction with the inter interstellar medium and lots of things. But the problem is, is that these occur on, on, on very short timescales. So once you've actually seen them, you need to get your telescope pointing at it pretty quick. And you can't wait, presumably, for three months uh, to discover that, oh, whoops, the telescope or one of the telescopes was pointing in the wrong direction and all your information is, is <laughs> well, ruined. The lifetime that you can get information on, on these supernova is actually a bit longer, but because of the rapid response thing, currently we don't have a lot of data for, for right at the beginning. Mm -hmm. Or if we do, it's only from, from actual lucky observations where you've been maybe observing something else and the, and the supernova's gone off in your field of view. The, the, the supernova flow of information starts with an optical detection. Somebody will see a, a supernova on the sky. They will then al alert everybody, basically, to the, the fact that a supernova's gone off. And then everybody in, in whichever institute or whichever part of the spectrum you're observing can then point their telescopes at it and start taking information on it and, 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 and learning more about it. The more data we get on, 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 on these things, the, the better, really. Very exciting stuff. It, it, it can be, yeah. <laughs> have you have you observed a supernova yet with normal uh, interferometry? I myself haven't, no. But people at the, this institute at Jodrell here observe many supernova within a, a given time period. One of our one of the the archetypical starburst galaxies, which is a galaxy that has an immense amount of star formation, and, and so because it has so much star formation, generally has a lot of supernova within it. The archetypal one of these, M82, is one of our uh, main areas of interest here at Jodwell, and there are a number of, of people working on, on, on supernova and supernova remnants in, in this galaxy. Well, we look forward to the first supernova being observed with the EVLBI. Yeah. Thank you very much, Matt. Thank you very much, Nick. Now, if you're in the market for a new telescope, then you may want some advice. There's lots out there to choose from, and it's quite bamboozling at first. So here's our resident expert, Ian Morrison, to review a fairly cheap new telescope that's out on the market. This is just a short review of a new go-to telescope that actually will be quite suitable for beginners. A go-to scope is one that, once you've aligned it, will then allow you to input into a little handheld computer any of about, in this case, 4,000 objects in the sky, and the telescope will then automatically slew round and observe them, just like our giant radio telescopes here at Jodrell Bank. Now, in their past, such copes have never been really quite as easy to use and set up as I think their manufacturers would have perhaps liked us to believe. So I've never been too keen to actually recommend one to a real beginner. But last year, Celestron came up with a new method of implementing the initial alignment of a scope. It's called Skyline, and it's wonderfully simple to use. All you have to do is to roughly level the telescope mount, and there's a little bubble that helps you do that, and then you point it to any three bright objects in the sky, and that can include the planets or even the moon. You centre on them, and having centred on these three objects, you press a little button, and it goes away, and it works out what those objects must have been. You don't need to know. It tells you what they are, if you want to know, and it's aligned, and then it will immediately be able to look around the sky and find other objects for you. On the handheld controller, there are a number of buttons that select individual lists of objects. 
perhaps one that many amateurs will use, is the one marked M. That stands for the Messier catalogue of just over 100 objects. And that was a catalogue produced by an astronomer called Messier way back in the 1700s, and it contains many of the most interesting, what are called deep sky objects, that we have in the northern skies. You will also, of course, find the moon and any of the planets that are visible in the sky at the time, and many of the galaxies in what's called the New General Catalogue. You can even ask it to take you for a tour, and it will move around the various interesting objects that are visible in the sky that very night. So once aligned, it finds things for you. In every case when I was using it, the object I was looking for appeared in the field of view of the wide-angle eyepiece that's provided. I looked at Saturn, and I was very impressed with the quality of the optics. However, I have to say this, that with the shorter focal length eyepiece that's provided, it's a 9mm eyepiece, you only get a magnification of times 72, and that's really not enough. So really an accessory you should buy very quickly after buying the scope is a times 2 or times 2.5 Barlow lens, as they're called, and these effectively double the magnification. That's a definite thing to buy. The particular scope that I tried was the 130 SLT, the Nexstar 130 SLT. The 130 is the measurement of the aperture, in this case, of a mirror, because it's a reflecting telescope, and the tube assembly was made in a considerably better way than many cheap scopes that I've looked at in the past. Uh, one thing it has is a, very, is a proper spider. This is a set of four steel veins that support the secondary mirror. In many cheap scopes that have been available up to now, these have been made of very, very thick metal, and that actually degrades the image quality. The ones in this scope are really first class. There's a little red dot finder that you use for the initial alignment, and then, in fact, very nicely, it tells you to turn the little red dot off. There's a LED which, in the system, essentially appears to produce a little red light in the sky, and you just set that little red light, little red dot, on top of the object you're trying to align with. Once you've done the initial alignment, then you turn off the LED to preserve the battery. That's all very clever. It also allows you to add what are called two-inch eyepieces. The standard eyepieces have a barrel diameter of one and a quarter inches. That obviously limits the maximum area of sky you can see at one time. However, by providing an adapter for two-inch eyepieces, it means you can see an even broader area of sky at one time. You can encompass the whole of the Pleiades. To do that, of course, you'd need to buy a two-inch diameter eyepiece. Uh, a very nice one that's available now is called a Moonfish 30mm ultra-wide. Costs about £50. And that will give you some lovely wide-field views. So it's a good optical tube assembly. The computer system works brilliantly. The whole telescope is relatively light, which means that uh, you can shake it about a bit. I've got a small sack of sand that I place within the tripod on the spreaders to help give it some stability. But apart from that, it really is a very, very good instrument at a not very large amount of money. It's under £300. If you care to go to the Night Sky page, you'll find a link to a very detailed review that I've placed there. But it is one of the very first computerised telescopes that I'd be happy to actually recommend to a beginner, because it really does work in just the way 
their manufacturer says it does. Now, in a slight change to our regular billing, Ian stays on to answer your questions for Ask an Astronomer. All right, now, and welcome to our segment, Ask an Astronomer. With me today is Ian Morrison, who is going to be answering your questions today. Thanks for coming along with us, Ian. A pleasure. Right, the first question we have is a very simple one, sent in by one of our listeners. Why does uh, the moon appear shiny? Actually, this is quite a tough question. I would slightly argue about the word shiny. I've never really thought it uh, appears shiny. It does appear very bright in the sky, but really that's a bit surprising in a way because the moon actually isn't very bright. It only reflects about 7% of the light falling on it from the sun, which isn't a lot. And uh, it only appears so bright because, of course, we see it against the inky blackness of space. If you filled the whole of the sky with full moons, the brightness would still be something like about 500,000 times less than the brightness of the sun. If you have a sheet of white paper under the light of the full moon, then in fact some people can actually read something on that paper. Now, the brightness of that white sheet is about 2,000 times less than the brightness of black velvet in broad daylight. The fact that you can do that is because our eyes are so incredibly sensitive and can vary their sensitivity by opening and closing the pupil compared to a bright sunny day and to the light of the full moon. Now, during the course of the lunar month, the brightness actually varies quite a bit. Um, it's brightest, of course, at full moon. Um, plus or minus a couple of days, it actually drops down to about half that brightness. And at what is called first and last quarter, when you see half the moon illuminated, it's about one-tenth the brightness of the full moon. So there's actually quite a big difference between uh, a moon as it's gradually getting full and full moon itself. The moon is also in an ecliptic orbit. Sometimes it's closer to the Earth and others. And that has an effect too. And when the Moon is very closest to us at full Moon, it's about 25% brighter than it might be on average. So there are times when the full Moon is actually very bright indeed. So it's bright only because we see it against the blackness of the sky and also because our eyes are so sensitive. They're wonderful instruments. On the other hand, it actually reflects very little light and uh, it's a bit like coal in a way, so it's surprising it looks so bright. Now, the word shiny, I'm not quite sure what that means. I sort of think of that meaning as something that looks a bit polished, and I don't think we could really say the moon is polished. It's very rough, it's got maria, it's got craters and mountains, but it's a lovely thing to look at, and I would encourage you to try and buy a small telescope or even binoculars and have a look at the moon yourselves. Next question for Ian is, what is a parsec? Right, what's a parsec? A parsec is a unit of distance. Let me first explain where the word comes from and how we measure distances in what are called parsecs, and then I'll give you another definition as well. Supposing you were on one side of a field, on the far side of which there was a wood, but right in the middle of the field was a single tree. If you walk back and forth where you are, you will actually notice that the position of the single tree moves with respect to the wood you see in the background. That we call parallax. 
Now, let's move that into the astronomical arena. Consider that many, many stars are very distant. That's our wood. And let's suppose there's a relatively nearby star, the single tree in the field. If we could move a big distance, we would see that star moving with respect to the distant stars. Now, of course, we do that. Each year, we go around the sun. So if we observe that star against the background of stars in the spring, and then observe it again six months later, we'll be on the other side of the Earth's orbit around the sun, and we'll have moved through space by two times 93 million miles, or two times 150 million kilometers. That's quite a big distance. Now, that star will have moved apparently by some angle. The direction our telescope would have to look would be very slightly different in the two locations. And that's where the sec comes in, parsec. Sec is short for seconds of arc. In fact, it is the seconds of arc that the star would appear to move, not from one side of the sun to the other, but in fact, just if the Earth had moved one astronomical unit, 150 million kilometers. The par comes from parallax. So parsec comes from parallax and seconds of arc. If a star appears to move by one arc second when we have moved through 150 million kilometers, then we say that star has a distance of one parsec. Now, there aren't all that many stars that we can actually measure that angle because the nearest star is just over a parsec away, and there are not many stars where we can measure the angle very accurately. But a satellite called Hipparchus has managed to do that for several thousand. Let's now try and put that distance, one parsec, in terms of units we might be able to relate to. We know that light travels 300,000 kilometers per second. It takes light eight and a quarter minutes, roughly, to reach the Earth from the Sun. Now, a parsec is 3.26 light years. So it is the distance that light can travel in 3.26 years. As I've said, the nearest star is just over four light years away, so one and a bit parsecs. And we can measure stars probably out to between 10 and 100 parsecs by this method of parallax. Measuring distances greater than that we have to use some other tricks of the trade. So, thank you very much, uh, Ian, for being our astronomer today. Remember, you can ask your own questions at the jodcast.net website. That's www.jodcast.net. Thanks, Nick and Ian. And now, finally, from Ian Morrison, here's what to look out for in the May night sky. The night sky in May. Well, sadly, of course, if you're an astronomer, uh, the nights, certainly in the UK, uh, are getting shorter, and so there's less time to see. But nevertheless, if you're prepared to stop a little while, there's some very interesting things to see in the sky this month. Let's start with the stars. As dusk falls, setting towards the west is the constellation of Gemini. And below that, a very insignificant constellation called Canis Minor, which has one bright star called Procyon. However, down to the left of Gemini, the two bright stars, Castor and Pollux, you'll actually see another bright object, which is in the constellation of Cancer. 
and that's the planet Saturn, and we'll come back to that later on. Over to the left of Cancer is the very nice constellation of Leo the Lion. It's one constellation that sort of actually looks like what it's meant to represent. It's a bit like one of the lions in Trafalgar Square, with its mane and head forming an arc, which we call the sickle, to the upper right, and with Regulus in the position of its right knee. That's the brightest star in Leo. It's a blue-white star, five times bigger than our sun, and about 90 light-years away. And it shines at magnitude 1.4. Above Regulus is a star called Algeba. It forms the base of the neck. It's the second brightest star in Leo with a magnitude of 1.9. But if you look at it with a telescope you'll see it splits into a lovely pair of golden yellow stars, one of the most magnificent double stars you can see in the sky. They orbit their common centre of gravity every 600 years and lie at a distance of 170 light-years away. Again, with a telescope, it's rewarding to sweep across below, basically, the base of Leo, and you see some very nice galaxies, M95, M96, and M65, and M66. So it's a very well worthwhile constellation to look at. Now high in the sky, seen best in fact about this time of year, is the constellation of Ursa Major. Almost everybody can recognise the part of Ursa Major which we call the plough. The two right-hand stars of the plough are called the pointers, Merak and Dubhe, if you follow them up, you find the North Star. It's a way that if the nights are clear, we can find out where North is. The Plough is just part of a much larger constellation. That's Ursa Major. That's the real constellation name. And again, there are a host of very interesting galaxies, either in Ursa Major or very close by. So it's very rewarding to have a look around. With any size telescope, really, will show you many of these nice things. If you look on the Jodrell Bank website at the night sky page, then in fact there are charts that show you where to look and a little bit about all of the objects. So those are the main constellations we can see in the evenings this month. There are a couple of highlights that we have. First of all, I mentioned Saturn earlier. That's moving towards a little cluster of stars called the Beehive Cluster, or Prysope, in Cancer. And at the end of the month, it'll in fact be very close. On the 31st, it'll be just below the cluster. But on that night too, there'll be a thin crescent moon close by. And in fact, Mars isn't that far away either. So that should be a very nice skyscape if it's clear around the last couple of days of May. At the very beginning of May, we have a chance to see a comet. And under very dark skies, you might even see it with your unaided eye. It's called Comet swashman wachman 3 which is quite a mouthful. During the first week, it's going to pass through the constellation of Hercules, then Lyra, then into Cygnus. So, in fact, you've got to wait up somewhat into sort of around midnight or just after to be able to see it. It actually comes to within 0.08 astronomical units of the Earth on May the 9th. And that's closer than any comet has done for many years. With binoculars, you'll have a very good chance to see it. And again, on the night sky page, I've put a chart telling you where it will be during that first week 
of May. So do try and have a look. Uh, comets that we can see easily don't come around very often. It's well worth a try. We've already mentioned Saturn, which is visible in the early evening in Cancer. But in fact, on May the 3rd, Jupiter reaches what we call opposition to the Sun. It's exactly opposite the Sun, which means it rises as the Sun sets and sets as the Sun rises. So it's visible essentially all night through. It's in the southeast in the evening, lying in the constellation of Libra. It's about minus 2.5 magnitude, so one of the brightest objects in the sky. And it still has an angular size of about 44 arc seconds which is really quite good, so a small telescope will be able to see quite a bit of detail. And obviously, you'll see the little moons, the Galilean moons, four of them, weaving their way around. You may see the red spot as well. And in fact, recently, another little spot has joined it, a second red spot, up and to the right of the great red spot. So it's well worth having a close look at Jupiter. Mercury, for most of the month, is actually passing behind the sun, so we obviously can't see it. But at the very end of May, there's a chance to see it to the lower left of the star Capella in the west-northwest after sunset. You've got to have a very good low horizon, and it's best to see the setting sun to actually get a good idea of where Mercury will be seen, just up and to the left of where the sun has set. It's about 8 o'clock from the star Capella. And you can tell you've seen Mercury because it won't twinkle as much as Capella or any other stars nearby. Now Mars can still be seen in the very early evening, I have mentioned it. It's moving, in fact, towards Saturn and will get quite close. In fact, on June the 17th, in fact, there's going to be a very nice conjunction with Saturn and the Beehive Cluster. So that's something for next month. That's a great astrophotograph opportunity. Venus is shining brightly low in the east before dawn. Anyone who gets up between about 5 and 6 o'clock has a good chance to see it over in the east. It's still very bright, about minus 4 in magnitude terms. And uh, although it's actually getting smaller because it's going further away, the surface area is actually increasing. It's illuminated, and so the overall brightness is staying much the same. So although this month our night is not so long, there are still some interesting things to see. I do hope you'll try and have a look. Right, so that brings us to the end of the May Judcast. Just about, but before we go, um, we should mention that this May the 6th is actually Astronomy Day. Ah. Um, and in fact, it's part of Astronomy Week, which runs from the 1st to the 7th of May. So hopefully somewhere around you there'll be events going on to do with astronomy. Look out for them. Contact your local astronomy society and find out what they're doing. OK, and we should mention that Dave, who as his real job is a planetarium presenter, he presents at the Think Tank Planetarium in Birmingham. So if you're anywhere around the Birmingham area, call in and say hello to him. Yes, that's right. And uh, we also do our own podcast for what to see in the night sky, and you can download that from www.thinktank.com. AC. So, now it just remains for me to thank uh, Megan Argo, Ian Morrison, Nick Rattenbury, and, of course, Stuart Lowe. It's been uh, great to see you again. Welcome back to the country. 
If you enjoy the podcast, please go and tell all your friends. Um, <laughs> we only have two listeners at the moment, but we hope to improve that. <laughs> yeah, so do send us an email. We do read them all. So, thank you very much, as I say, and we look forward to seeing you again next month. Goodbye. Bye. Why are you doing this to me? <laughs> now we play a game. An easy category. Computer trivia. Please. Don't do this. The question is, are you going to subscribe to the Juncast? <laughs> but it's an astronomy podcast. You know I will. Okay, then. See you next month. Is that it? Sure. Cool. Thanks. And I just want to say thanks very much there to Victoria Sampson and to Peter Oglug for doing that sketch. And, of course, no attempt was made to infringe or supersede any uh, copyright relating to Scream or Scary Movie, which, of course, remain the property of Dimension Films. And if you have any ideas for intros and outros that you'd like to hear, then let me know. You can find the email address on the Jodcast website. Bye.